Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm sat in my car and I thought it'd be a good time to introduce to you the next guest. Now, I am trying to disrupt my podcast. You've heard me talk about this a lot by finding guests that as well as big names in the business world, big celebrities in the wider world, names of people that do great things that are quirky, individual, disruptive that you may not have heard about. Now, one of my big passions is hi-fi. I love listening to vinyl. Uh, Since I was, what, 14 years old when I bought my first separate system, a sort of a a two-box Technics amplifier and CD player and a set of JMO Concert 2 speakers. It was like the only 800 pounds I had in the whole world back when I was, what's that, 26 years ago? Um, I've been loving and um, it's been a passion of mine, Hi-Fi. And I've upgraded year on year on year on year as I could afford it. Even when I was a student, couldn't afford any money. I upgraded to this Mission Cirrus system and Mission Speakers. And as I've got more fortunate in my wealth, I've been able to uh, uh, build quite a nice little Hi-Fi system. And music just well-recorded, great-sounding music to me makes me feel alive. Uh, Now, this is a world where there are so many passionate disruptive, creative individuals. And I want to open up this world a bit more to the masses. So the man you're about to hear from is Dan D'Agostino. Now, if you're into high-end hi-fi, but it has to be ultra high-end, um, then you will, audiophile, I'm talking here, a bit, a bit elitist and snobbish, you will know of Dan D'Agostino. There's a, probably the best hi-fi I ever heard was driven by a set of Krell monoblock amps. And Dan actually set up Krell um, he then left Krell to set up his own brand, Dan D'Agostino, and you'll hear me talk about that in the podcast. He's had more than 30 years building amplifiers in the high-end hi-fi world. Um, he has had countless disruptions and innovations in amplification. He has a set of power amplifiers, which I'd love to demo one day, and I suppose this would be like me having a Ferrari F40, the ultimate car, the ultimate amplifiers. Um, He has a pair of amplifiers that are $250,000 and they're called the Relentless. And he talks a lot about his vision for those and creating them and how many units he sold. And, you know, like the the critique he has to deal with when he's selling amplifiers for a quarter of a million dollars. He talks about his love for music. Um, I just would love to hear from you as to what you think about these different types of guests that maybe aren't hugely famous in the world. Of course, um, I've got the famous ones, like I'm interviewing Jackie Stewart in a few weeks. He's obviously worldwide famous. I'm interviewing Jo Malone in a few weeks. She's worldwide famous. I've got agreement from some very big names that we're just trying to tie the dates up. But um, this, you could call this a cult one, a boutique type one. Let me know what you think. Um, I think he's a very charming guy. He's, he's, he openly admits he's not really the business behind it. He just wants to build amazing amplifiers. And, you know, like he's got his wife for the business partnership. Um, anyway, uh, I will let you judge, but please do get in touch with me and let me know what you think. I want your feedback on all these episodes. So let's go in with this disruptive entrepreneur interview with Dan D'Agostino. Well, Dan, thank you very much for doing the podcast today. My pleasure. 
How did you first get interested in hi-fi and what led to very high-end hi-fi and audio? I think for me, it was, uh, it was music. And my father, when I was young, uh, was a hi-fi buff. So he played lots of uh, different music and uh, went about building a small audio system that was very interesting to me. I think I was 11 or 12 years old and it kind of set my, my love of music. And at what point did it turn into a career and something that you took really seriously? I think that, um, I think it took a while for that, for the career to be a career. Uh, I, I started to know that, that I liked being involved with audio. And uh, once I started to work in audio, I kind of realized where I wanted to concentrate. Uh, and uh, I really felt that uh, um, I saw a gap in the late 70s uh, in amplifier designs. And I started to look at what was out there. And I decided that what the world needed was a 100-watt Class A amplifier. And uh, that's what kind of made me serious because I, uh, I, I designed a circuit, put it together, brought it to the audio show in 1980, January. And uh, people really liked the idea. So that's when I really thought that I had a business. Right. And um, you say you saw a gap in um, amplification. What was that gap that you saw? Well, I, I saw that the only Class A amp out there was uh, Mark Levinson 25-watt Class A. And uh, I didn't think 25 watts was really adequate to play most of the speakers that were built. Uh, back in those days, I think speaker efficiency was in the middle of the low 80s dB so for sensitivity. And that, that needed a bigger amplifier than 25 watts. So I thought a 100-watt Class A was feasible in a reasonable size box. And that's why I went about doing it. And fast forward to now and you make amplifiers which uh, a quarter of a million pounds, sorry, a quarter of a million dollars a pair, isn't it? Yes, I do. So that, that's probably a little bit more overkill than just a bit of extra power. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, in, in this amplifier's case, um, it was a, a quest that I always wanted to do an amplifier that worked this way. And once I got that under my belt, I, um, I wanted to turn it into a product. Mm. The, the Relentless is a very unique amplifier and how it operates and, uh, and its power delivery and, and all of those things that make an amplifier really uh, uh, wonderful sounding are in the Relentless. But it took me two years to actually turn it into a product. Right. And, and could you explain, and maybe in some layman's terms as well as some technical terms, what's so different about your amplifiers that justify a quarter of a million dollars um, investment? Well, first of all, um, let me say that the, the enclosure that the amplifier is in is not a traditional looking enclosure for amplifiers in that price range. Surely you've seen a number of different offerings in the two hundred dollars to $300,000 price range which are usually great big boxes or towers, uh, which I don't think many people would really want in their living room. Uh, but I wanted to make something that, that was kind of spacey looking and maybe a little, a little Jules Verne looking, uh, maybe a little engine looking, some V8, V12 look in there. <laughs> I wanted to make something that was really visually attractive and also compelling to look at. 
But the insides of the of the amplifier are really where where the price and cost come in, where the 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 type of output stage is very expensive to build. Uh, all of the internal components are made of one uh, percent and less, 0.1 percent part, parts. Everything's pre-tested. The circuit itself is a is a magnificent uh, circuit because it acts like an active balance cable. So if you know all the advantages of a balanced cable, and that's been around since the 40s, um, you know, you add the two negative and positive signal paths and you get reduction in noise and current. And uh, uh, you get very low, uh, very low noise. And also you get nulling of all of the different various components on either one. This amplifier does exactly that. Uh, so, so when you have an amplifier like this that, that operates, if you look at either side, the plus or the minus side, has modest distortion characteristics. But when you add the two together, it has really exemplary distortion in noise characteristics because they are nulling each other out. So I start off with a 0.1 and it turns into a 0.006 at full power. That's the distortion speed. But I didn't actually add feedback or do anything like that to achieve that other than making a perfect mirror image amplifier. Mm. So when you started this two-year quest to, to build this, design this, did you think, um, I'm just going to design and build what I want to create and then the price will come after? Or did you have a sort of a budget that it might be in mind? This amplifier was of a scale that I, I didn't actually have a budget. Uh, I wanted to build it, and I, I didn't want to take any shortcuts. Um, the fact that it came out to be the price it is, is, uh, is just, you know, happenstance. Mm. You know, it could have been more, uh, uh, but, you know, I, I was a, I've been working with the metalwork vendor for, for 40 years almost. So he and I had an accord on how to get the, the price of the amplifier reasonable in the case, and all of the electronic parts uh, I didn't. I didn't make any compromises, or, or on. I just built them the way they should be built, mm. and this is how it came out. I mean, we are a small company. It takes two weeks to build one of those amplifiers. Wow! And and, and how many a year do you produce? Well, we haven't had a year yet, but I think we've produced almost twenty pairs of them today. Yeah. So we so started it's... shipping uh, probably uh, probably in uh, October. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Yeah, so very new. Yeah. Mm. And and how many how many products across your range do you produce a year? Well, I'm going to say about um, all the products together, probably about five hundred. Okay. Yeah. And do you mind just sharing the price range between the star and then the highest end? The lowest one is uh, about fifteen thousand yeah. dollars, and it goes all the way up to the relentless. And we have a few slots in between like uh, we have an amplifier for 22,000 we have an amplifier for 40,000 we have an amplifier for around for around 65,000 and then it hops to the relentless sure okay so there must be a lot of people who want to run a business who are also passionate like you about their art and what they do who are probably a bit worried to have high prices or scared to put their prices up. And I'm not getting that impression with you. So how do you have the confidence to charge, go to the top end of the market and, and, and charge the top end fees? I think the reason why um, 
I'm, I'm not going to tell you that I'm, I don't enter it with some trepidation, uh, because when when you uh, when you uh, uh, design a product, it comes out a certain way, and then you decide if you want to build it. I mean, you don't have to build it, mm. but we 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 talk to dealers and we ask their opinions and tell them what we're planning on and see what their opinion is. In Relentless case, everybody said, oh yeah, I would love to see a pair of amplifiers like that from you. And uh, I think I have one or two customers that would be willing to buy it. That's turned out pretty true. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it is a gamble going out there in this marketplace with audio being very hard to uh, to get represented. There's not as many dealers are there as there were 10 years ago, and certainly not as many as there were 20 years ago. And uh, unless you have a real compelling product or you have a name in the industry, it's very hard to get a dealer to answer Sure. So that was a question I was going to ask a bit later, but I'd like to ask it now, if that's okay, Dan, is how has the audio, the, the high-end hi-fi market changed in the last sort of, I guess, 30 years for you since you started and maybe share for better and for worse? Well, let's say 30 30 some years ago, audio was a really big deal. I mean, you go into an audio shop on a Saturday afternoon, you really had a hard time getting to talk to anybody because they were crowded with people coming in to see it uh, and listen to, to things. And then vinyl was a, was a big factor. And then uh, a CD came out and uh, there was a flurry of activity around that that was really un- amazing. You know, everybody was trying to get their hands on a CD player or CDs. I remember people flying to Hong Kong to buy CDs and flying home so they could play them on a CD player. Uh, I, I think there's been lots of excitement in the audio industry. Right now, I think it's survival of those who understand the market and really enjoy their work. The people who really think that they can sit down at their desk and wait for customers to come in to sell them the system, I think, I think those days are gone. People are educated on the internet. They see prices on the internet. They see what other people are buying. So when they come into your shop, they want to be sold something that they like. They're not just going to come in and say, hey, uh, sell me a system. I I don't think you see that anymore. I think there's a lot of work at getting a customer in, uh, educating him on why you're selling what you're selling, and getting him to commit to to buying a system from you. Uh, it, it's not it's not an easy game. I think I think dealers out there really have to be on their toes and really offer a great service along with the product they're selling. Because anyone can buy something on the internet and bring it home and 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 and, and use it. A dealer has to give them value for for buying it through him. Mm. And how do you think you're going to navigate this changed world? How do you think that you'll be able to thrive uh, as a brand? Well, we're trying to do things that people like. I keep my ear to the ground and listen for trends and, and, and try to get and try to get products that are compelling, but also stuff that 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 has a unique appeal to it that people will want to buy it because of its look, stature, its feel. Its look and feel is very important, and of course, how it sounds. And I and I think that over the forty some years I've been doing this, I've, I've got a kind of a signature sound that people like. Um, and uh, uh, I keep on trying to put new products on the market in a broader base price ranges so that people can enjoy our products. 
That signature sound that you have, is that something that was intentionally driven by you or was that feedback from the, you know, the marketplace? Well, you know, my, my, my sound is the sound that I'm looking for. I mean, at, at Krell, I had a certain uh, idea of what I wanted to do, but at D'Agostino, my whole emphasis is on how things sound. If I build a product and I build it, bring it home and I don't get goosebumps or tears in my eyes when old songs play, then I don't want to sell it. Mm. I bring it back and I work on it until it gives me that emotional effect. And I think other people get that effect from listening to our equipment. And certainly people have told me uh, uh, that they, they get really close to the product and how it sounds and really enjoy it. So mm. I, I try to keep everything in that, in that kind of envelope. I don't EQ sound, I just make products that amplify a certain spectrum that, that, are, uh, that is pleasing. And, and that's usually not leaving anything to chance. I, I, I don't wanna miss any detail. I don't wanna miss any small signals that, that, that I wanna gloss them over. I wanna produce them all. And usually that makes a very good sounding product. Is there anything that you can you do in the process to know that you're going to get that sound that moves people? You know, I, I have to say that, uh, you know, there's an intuition on circuits that I design that I know kind of what they're going to sound like together. And I keep on pushing the envelope, like in the relentless, I, I've done a lot of things that I always wanted to do and made them all work together. And that's why the relentless sounds the way it does. It's, a, it's an extraordinary extraordinarily good sounding amplifier. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm in love with my M400s. I mean, and a lot of people are. I listen to them. And when I brought the Relentless home with all that two-year effort and listened to it for the first time, I was worried that it wasn't going to sound better than the, than the M400. It really mm. concerned me because the M400 is, is like a habit. Once you start listening to it, you can't stop. And uh, I brought the Relentless home and turned it on. And I said to myself, wow, I hope this is even as good. And of course, it was, it was actually a lot better in the same area. It sounds like a, a more refined, bigger let, uh, uh, power amp than a, than a 400, but it does have that kind of signature too. Mm. Okay. Uh, so some people say that uh, for a, to experience a great sound is for a component to not get in the way of the music and for the component to show the music as it is, as opposed to bringing its own characteristics. Um, I was involved in a big debate on a forum recently. I just purchased a new DAC um, and basically someone said, well, you shouldn't hear the DAC. The DAC should not get in the way. Um, do, what stance do you have? Do you think you want to bring a characteristic and a style of sound or get out of the way and present the music exactly how it's supposedly supposed to be shown? Well, that, I'm, I'm, I'm of the school. I want my product out of the way. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't want it to intrude. And in fact, when I designed the Momentum preamp, I was using a DAC as a front end. Uh, so it was driving the amplifier directly. And when I inserted the preamp, I did not want to have a tonal balance change. But what I did want was more dynamic contrast and a lower noise floor, which the preamp gave me, but it, it did not change the character of the sound. And that's the most important thing about audio today. It's why a lot of products that I look at and stuff, I, 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 I see why the designer did it, 
but I noticed that there's a characteristic when it's inserted in the system. That's not my choice. I, I wouldn't do it, but some guys like to do that. And, and yeah. so like to listen to them. Mm. And so would you say then that you're bringing your characteristics and traits through the, the visual look and the size and the presence of the design? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think it's important. I mean, like if you went out and bought a tack watch, it has a certain look, a Richard Mill, beautiful look. You know, those are, those are, I mean, over and beyond the movement, you kind of like the tactile feel and the look of, 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 of what was created. I'm trying to do that in a much bigger scale on amplifier designs so that people get in, in, involved in the sound and, and also the look. I mean, you know what? You can make something in a really ugly metal box and put it on the floor and the sound could be exactly the same, but it wouldn't give you as much pleasure. Mm. It just wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you don't you don't go out and buy a, a cheap digital watch and look at it and go, oh, yeah, I love it. You don't. You yeah. don't do it. Yeah, I... I I 100% agree with that. And this must be a placebo. Maybe you can discuss this, Dan. But I find when I sit and listen to my music, if I look at my speakers, they sound better. Whereas if I sit and listen and look at my laptop or don't look at my speakers, they don't quite sound as good. And like, I love looking at beautiful, to me, and I kind of feel a bit crazy saying this because, you know, like, but... Looking at a beautiful piece of hi-fi um, seems to add to the experience to me. For me, it it really does. Um, uh, I had a, a old Japanese friend when I first started business at Krell, nineteen eighty-one or eighty-two. I was in Japan. And he told me, he said, no matter how good something sounds, if it's not pleasing to look at it doesn't make for a good experience. Mm. He was right. And I've kind of tried to hold to that. And in this company, I'm really trying to hold a product that, that weighs 500 pounds to watch standard finishes and yeah. looks. And, it, and it's really, it's really uh, kind of uh, invigorating to build something on that scale and make it finished in, in, in style like, like a very high fashion piece of jewelry. So you mentioned Patek and Richard Mille, which are brands I love. Are you inspired by other brands? Yes, Reggae. And, uh, I'm, I'm a, I used to be a watch collector. I still am to some degree. Mm-hmm. I, like, I like some of the uh, avant-garde watches that, uh, that uh, uh, IWC makes and some of the pilot watches and uh, some of their big format watches. I really love those. I love Panerai's, the new ones that are, that are flatter and cool looking. I, I, I think that there's a lot of very interesting watches on the market. Mm. I mean, the fact is that, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Apple watch is uh, a great watch and a lot of my friends wear them and so do I when I work every day. But when I go out, I wear, I wear an analog watch yeah. and I really enjoy it. Mm. It's funny because, um, a lot of people thought when quartz movements became big and Casio got huge, that you know the the higher end watch brands would be dead. I think they had a, a, a bit of a problem or an issue, but I think when they worked out that a watch was also a piece of jewelry and a piece of art and not just a something to keep the time on, 
um, the, the watch industry had a bit of a renaissance and, and grew and grew and grew. Um, do you think that's maybe the way Hi-Fi could go? Um, I, I'm hoping that. I, I agree with you. I hope Hi-Fi goes that direction. I, I, I hope there's more uh, avant-garde looking Hi-Fi out on the market that, that intrigues people's interest and brings them in. Because, you know, as, 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 as you know, we, we just discussed, you know, if the, if the product's visually compelling, you tend to look at it, you tend to enjoy its presence in the room. So when you're listening to music, it enhances your enjoyment. So um, I just um, did a little upgrade of my system, Dan, uh, and I bought a, um, a Dart Seal power amp, and it's got uh, glass at the top. And it, it, I mean, Dart Seal are Swiss, as you'll know, and it does look like, it's like looking inside an Audemars Piguet or a Patek, and I bought a, an Audio Re- Reference Research 6 preamp, and it's the same thing. You can, you can actually have an option to get the clear top, which, which I just think is, is fantastic, because when I bought my first system when I was 16, which was a Technics amp and a Technics CD player, none of that was really there. Um, is there a reason you didn't put anything on the top so we could see inside your amps? The, the, the reason is a lot of my amps are made of a solid block of material. So it'd be, it'd be kind of counterproductive to cut a hole in the top so you could see the inside. Mm. I, I like solid block construction. By the way, I do love the, the whimsical nature of the dark zeal amplifier. I love, I love the color schemes. Yeah. I think it's beautiful. Mm. I, I, that's a beautiful product. I'd like to see more things on the market. Mm. Yeah. Um, so what would you say is the ethos, the vision uh, of you and um, your company? My, the vision for my company is to continue to push the leading edge of audio and continue to try to make products that are, that are visually enhanced enhanced. I, I really, I really want to continue to do that. I want to make more uh, 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 internet-based products that people enjoy using on a high-end basis. There's plenty of products out there you can buy for almost no money that will listen to you and play the music you want. I don't know why that we can't do that in the high-end. Why can't we make a really beautiful amplifier that that does all the things that a cheaper product does just by voice commands. And I, I sometimes will be working and am in fact working on something that might do that. And I, I really think that's the wave of the future because, you know, with all the music and the high res downloads on the internet, it's a, it's a wonderful time to experience music and it should be very easy to access. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a pain like some of the high end products are. And, and including some of the ones I've designed in the past and, and in present, you know, that, that you have to go through a couple steps to make it do what cheaper products do just by talking. I would love to know your go-to demo songs. So um, I've just done a big upgrade of my hi-fi recently over Christmas and um, my go-to songs are Bomb Track by Rage Against the Machine, Luminol by Stephen Wilson, Sound of Music by Stephen Wilson, and Paranoid Android by Radiohead. Um, I think that they just sound fantastic. They're well recorded. They've got a good range. What do you have? Go-to demo songs? Yeah, I, I have some uh, some uh, old recordings of, uh, of Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole, and Hi-Rez. 
And I really enjoy listening to them. I mean, I've listened to them all my life. I've listened to a lot of, uh, of uh, jazz from the 80s and 90s, mm. early 80s, and uh, really enjoy those recordings. So I play them over and over again. Some Art Farmer, uh, John Coltrane, um, uh, some Bird stuff. Uh, Archie Shep is a big, I'm a big fan of some of his later stuff. So I play a lot of jazz and I play, I play uh, all different types of music, including rock and, and you name it. But I, I have go-to recordings and they're always the same ones because I want to just hear if I left anything out or I hear something different that I haven't heard before. Mm. So would you usually have the go-to songs that you just know the sound and tests the system? Or do you sometimes like to surprise yourself by listening to other sort of more random songs? I do like to surprise myself. But before I go and look for random songs on, 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 on the search engine, I look, for, uh, I look for the things I've heard in the past to define the thing I just designed to see that it's doing everything I want. And a lot of times I surprised, I said, wow, I never heard that before. Mm. And, that, and that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something that I peeled another layer off. Mm. And, that, that, and that, that really excites me. And then I will go about and play, you name it, I'll play anything. Mm. You know, I, 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 play, I play all kinds of new music and I look for stuff that's, that's kind of crazy. And uh, that's when I do that. I, I'll, I'll spend hours and hours and hours this is really a bit geeky of me to say, Dan. Um, uh, and I'd like to try and for us to talk how non-hi-fi people could understand this. But um, once I got my system the way I wanted it, I put a song on by Elbow called Fugitive Motel and a dog barks in the intro. And yeah, Roger, they, Roger Waters. Sorry? Roger Waters. Right, there you go. <laughs> um, but I've listened to a lot of hi-fi, a lot of music, and for the first time ever in this song, you could hear the dog barking through the first 30 seconds of the song. And I'd never heard that before on any other system because it had never picked it up. And it just was an amazing thing to behold, to hear something you've never heard before when you've got your system right. So um, how could you say to someone who doesn't have the passion for hi-fi that we do how can you explain that emotion well you know what i like to do is i like to take people because i live in a little town here in arizona and a lot of people ask me what i do when i tell them and they say oh i i can't hear you know i, I i'm not a trained ear i said why do you need to be a trained ear i said can you hear me talk he said yeah i said you have hearing loss no well how about if i played something for you that when you listen to it you might think the guy's actually standing in the room mm. And they go, oh, that'd be cool. And I bring them, I bring them to my house and I play that stuff. And they, and they are awed by the fact that, yes, Frank Sinatra's kind of standing right there singing to them. Yeah. You know, the speakers disappear and there's all that nuance. You know, I mean, the, the fine grain detail on the beginnings of recordings where instruments start to queue up and people are shuffling their feet on the floor. And uh, 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 or you hear in, the, in symphonic orchestra, people breathing and tightening their, their, their instruments up and holding them. You can hear all that stuff. And that makes for a really amazing experience. In the case of the dog, the dog on that Roger Waters recording is some kind of crazy phasing in the, in the recording process because it seems to float in the air and come up from behind you when you're listening to it. It's kind of the strangest phenomenon. And, and you heard that, and that's a great thing. 
I love to hear that stuff in recordings. I think that's amazing. I mean, like some of the Nat King Cole recordings I have, the really old ones, you can hear him talking to his uh, stage staging guy, you know, how do I say this word in Italian? And it's an amazing experience to get that. Mm. So you, um, you started uh, with Krell. Did you actually, did you found and start Krell yourself? I, I started Krell, yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, my uh, my uh, girlfriend at the time, which later became my wife, was also my partner. We started it together. Mm. And why did you then move on and move on from Krell and then move on in, in, into your, well, your own? All I can say is that um, I made a error in judgment in business, took in a, a minority investor that, that had control of my board and they fired me. Ah, and what did you learn from that? I learned not to trust anyone. Oh, come on. <laughs> Especially uh, in yeah, and, and how, has, how has that changed the way you run um, your company now? My company is very small. It's run by my wife, Petra, and I. She runs all of the uh, operations daily, and I run the engineering department. And, uh, uh, you know, my, my, we keep it very close, and uh, she's extremely good at running a business, which I am not. I'm an engineer, so I just want to design yeah. You know, the rest of the business and buying parts and doing all that stuff is not interesting to me. Yeah. Bringing money in, it's, isn't it, it's interesting to, to have it, but I'm not a good manager. So I let her do it. And she's been an integral part of my business since the very beginning. We started it together. Mm. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's worked extremely well. Do you ever have any creative tension where maybe she's got a commercial eye on what parts cost and you want to make a, a, a pure piece of art? Well, uh, yes, we do have those discussions. Those, those actually do happen. Uh, and it depends on what I'm designing. If I'm designing a relentless, a, a, a relentless or a momentum, that I, you know, that's not a discussion that we have. But if I'm trying to design a $15,000 amplifier, Yes, that is, that is a concern about what parts we use and how do we keep the cost so that when we sell it, we can actually make money on it. Because yeah. everything here is hand-built. Absolutely everything. We don't have any mechanizing, no, no surface mounts, all through hole. It's all hand-built. Uh, you know, we, 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 uh, we're a very small company and we try to keep our quality really high. So when we build even a, a less expensive product, the same attention to detail goes into it. Mm. So the only place we have to compromise is how the case looks, how it's built. Um, some of the parts, we, uh, we really don't compromise on anything that has to do with sonic integrity. Yeah. Okay. Um, what's going to happen to the future of Dan D'Agostino? And, um, you know, maybe do you want it to carry on going beyond your lifetime? Have you thought about that? I do. And to that end, I have uh, I have my uh, my children working here, three of them, and uh, they work here with us, and they're going to carry on. Uh, my grandson, uh, my son, my son Brett, who passed away two years ago, his son is going to engineering school, and he's going to come and work for me probably in another year and a half to two years. So I feel like he's going to carry on in the engineering tradition. He's very well attuned to the stuff I'm doing, and he's taking courses that are germane to what I'm doing. Mm. So I think that's going to be a nice carryover. 
But, you know, but what I'd like to do is, you know, while it, as long as I'm on the earth, just contribute to the company in either design or uh, ideas, and then have uh, the rest of the family here execute them at the building. Uh, my sales manager and president of sales, Bill McKeegan, is going to stay on and uh, uh, continue to run the company when I decide that I don't want to go to work every day. Yeah. So we have a we have a very good future and a very good idea about how the company and the name is going to continue. Mm. And do you think you may embrace some of the future smart technologies? You re- you mentioned it a little bit earlier, Dan. Um, I interviewed the CEO of Audemars Piguet and um, Francois was very clear he won't be doing smartwatches for AP for a very long time. Um, I guess there may be some snobbery or some people who embrace technology in, you know, the very high-end hi-fi. Um, what's your take on that? Well, I, I think that, I, I, as I said, I want to melt the two together in a very compelling way. Mm. Uh, and I don't want to leave the other products I designed in the, in the previously out of that equation. So some kind of interface product that talks to my products. Uh, and I have, I have obviously ways to, uh, uh, through the internet and through RS-232 to communicate. So something like that, that allows, that allows you to do the modern things and still maintain the product base that you have would be something that I'd be very interested in working on. So we'll do a couple of quick fire questions, Dan, if that's okay, and then um, I'll let you go. So thank you very much for giving your time. Very grateful. Um, So what's the best advice you've ever received? Don't believe all of your own hype. Mm. (laughs) Amen. What's the worst advice you've ever received? You need an investor. (laughs) Um, What do your critics say? about your amplifiers and your brand? And then what would you say in response to that? I'm not sure what my critics say. Um, I, I don't, I, I, I keep my ear to the ground, but I don't very often hear people saying, well, I don't like this or I don't like that. Mm. And I'd be open to any of that if, if people would tell me the stuff they don't like. Sure. So I address it or mm. not, depending on if it's possible. Mm. But I, I, I don't get a lot of end-user communications. A lot of the, of the communications I get, because our stuff's expensive, they've committed to it before they, they bring it home. Yeah. So when they bring it home, they may have a question or two, which I'm always glad to answer. I talk to any customer who calls me. So sure. I think it's important they have that kind of feedback. Yeah, that's great. Um, is there anything wrong with the world that you'd like to change? Uh, I'd like everybody to get along. Yeah, <laughs> uh, definitely. Um, wh- what is the word disruptive? So this podcast has the word disruptive in its title. Um, what does the word disruptive mean to you? Uh, unsettling. Mm. And do, do you feel like your products are quite disruptive? No, I think my products are uh, engrossing. I mm. think attract people to look at them and touch them, feel them and see what they do. Yeah. Someone said to me um, that they thought that, that your Relentless and, and some of your other amps were quite steampunk. They used the word steampunk. Um, I heard that too. Yeah. Is there, is there any influence? You mentioned a few earlier. Is, is that an intentional thing or has it just come out as it's come out? You know, it came out as it came out because when I did the Momentum, 
and a stereophile put it on the cupboard calling it a steampunk inspired amplifier. I had to go look it up to see what that <laughs> yeah. I didn't know what that was. Yeah. And sure, there's a lot of really cool symmetries. And I, I look at that, that, that stuff and I say, wow, I'd like to design stuff in some ways more like that. But it's, uh, I, I, I'm following like an intuitive thing that I did with the momentum. And I just like to keep on that track. So I kind of stick with that. I really probably am not going to, uh, to, uh, escape the design plans that I have and go for something really steampunk. Probably not. Sure. Okay. Well, Dan, thank you very much. Um, where can people find out more about your amplifiers and products and just, you know, follow your work? Well, I think the website's the best place and our website lists a lot of our dealers and distributors around the world. And uh, I'm always here in Cave Creek, Arizona. If you want to come and visit, I'd be glad to give you a tour and let you listen to audio at my house. So I'm always here for that. Would, would, would I be able to take you up on that as well? Absolutely. Great. So the URL to your website, is it is just your name.com, isn't it? Yes. Andagstino.com. So, um, and, but it hasn't got the apostrophe in it on the website. No, nothing likes the apostrophe. No. So problem. Dan D-A-N-D-A-G-O-S-T-I-N-O D-A-N-D-A-G-O-S-T-I-N-O.com. Yes. Great. Dan, I'm really grateful for you spending your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you.